You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, if you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to Mark and chapter 9. Mark and chapter 9. Just while you're doing that, we love stories, don't we? I think actually uh, we're fascinated by them. I personally love watching them on the screen. Films are a fantastic way of entertaining, educating, and inspiring us. And my wife and I, we love going to see true stories, or or films that are based on true stories, let's be totally honest. The Greatest Showman, has anyone seen that one? Oh, You can now do a sing-along version of The Greatest Showman. This is a story based on P.T. Barnum. He was the visionary American showman of the 1800s, and his drive and passion against all odds... Great film. Next film I saw this year, there you go, I've been to the cinema many times, 12 Strong. Anybody seen 12 Strong? Oh, God, am I watching all the wrong films by the looks of it? (laughs) Captain Mitchell. He leads a small, elite U.S. Special Forces unit into Afghanistan as a result of September 11. True story. I'm not quite sure how it all plays out on this one. Fascinating. Anybody seen The Darkest Hour? Everybody's in church, nobody's in the cinema. That's great. Winston Churchill, the pressures and struggles of being the Prime Minister of this country at the start of World War II. It's, it's a great film. And the last one, I'm not even going to ask you because, no, oh, you've been. We went together. Oh, The Post. Catherine Graham, the first female publicist of a major American newspaper, the Washington Post, as she decides to expose a major establishment cover-up. I love this. I love these, these stories that stir us. The Gospel of Mark is a true story based upon the life of Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. We've looked at three things so far. The story began. There's no Christmas if you look at the Gospel of Mark. What happens is Jesus comes quickly on the scene. He gets baptized. He goes into the wilderness, endures the temptation, and he declares the kingdom is about to advance. That's the story begins. The second thing we've looked at is the story was then demonstrated. There are parables. There are healings. There's the calming of the storm when he's in the boat. They're setting the demons free. It's incredible. Then we discovered this story is bigger than we can possibly imagine, and we called it the world story. Jesus moves beyond Galilee. There's bread not just for a nation in the desert for 40 years. There's bread for the nations of the world. Peter's confession in Caesar's hometown, where he was declared Lord, declares that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. The transfiguration... There's a sense of the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of history, looking to Jesus Christ, this world story. But now, as we go into Mark chapter 9, we're moving out of part 1 into what I'm describing as part 2. Part 1 is, was, was all about the crowds. Jesus is ministering. He feeds 5,000 men. Women and children, that was 20,000. It was a big thing. Part one, he preached to the many. Part one, he was healing the masses. Part one, sinners were invited to come and discover Jesus. Now we go to part two. Part two is smaller. 
It's about Jesus getting intimate with his disciples. He's investing in the few. He's no longer calling for people to come and get healed. He's calling for people to serve. It's no longer about sinners coming and joining his band. It's more about disciples called to surrender. From this book in Mark 9, there's only 16 chapters in Mark. It's the shortest gospel. From this point on, he's now looking towards Jerusalem. Mark only records Jesus going to Jerusalem once although we believe he visited many times, because he wants us to realize this was such a significant event. The one time that Mark records Jesus going to Jerusalem is for his death and resurrection. And so we are now leading towards that. And I've called this section the costly story. The costly story. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read these verses at the end of Mark. Jesus, we thank you for this story that we're reading. We thank you that from the life of Peter, recorded by Mark, we discover something about this great story. I thank you this is a world story. I thank you it's a true story. I pray that you'd speak to us this morning as we look at these verses. How does it apply to each one of us? We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Right, we're going to read from verse 30 to verse 50. If you've got a Bible, follow it along. If not, the words are on the screen. Jesus predicts his death a second time. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask about it. They came to Capernaum, where he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, that was a place of authority for a teacher. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Whoever is not against us is for us. In verse 38, it goes, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose the reward, causing to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. 
If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the worm that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Golly, it's a challenging passage, isn't it? Suddenly I I read that and uh, I put together this preaching series and I think I should have given this week to somebody else. (laughs) I'd much rather preach about the Lord is my shepherd and he loves me and he leads me. But this is in the Bible. William Barclay, who's a commentator, he was a, a, a minister in the Church of Scotland, said this, men accept the part of the Christian message which they like and which suits them and refuse to understand the rest. Now, I wonder when you think about the God of love, whether you get to a passage like this and think, golly, I don't understand it. I don't want anything to do with it. I'd much rather be thinking about this one who's a shepherd who loves me. This is the Bible, and I believe it's key for those that want to be disciples. This is part two. Yeah, part one, big crowds, big picture. Part two is coming for us. Three things that I want to say. The first thing is this. We are called to be servants of all. Servants of all. I think as disciples, it's easy to miss that. I find this fascinating, don't you? Jesus has just declared, point blank, I'm about to die. He has been talking in parables before, but but now he's... And what do the disciples do? Jesus says, I'm going to die. What do the disciples do? It's right there in the passage. They worry about... Who of us is going to get the highest place? Fascinating, isn't it? The disciples spent so much time wrapped up on themselves. I love the honesty of the Bible, but it was a real challenge. If you read in Mark 8, they start arguing amongst themselves. Hey, you forgot the bread. It's your fault. That wasn't my fault. I did bread yesterday. Now it's your turn. Suddenly, it's how do, how do we argue about what's gone wrong? We find them in... In Mark 9, arguing with the teachers of the law. We find them actually later on in Mark, arguing with this this person who wants to cast out a demon. We find them judging a woman who anoints Jesus' feet. In fact, even at the Last Supper, you know, we always think, oh golly, surely that was a holy moment. We've got one of them, Peter, boasting, I will be faithful, Lord, even if the others aren't. The danger is we get so caught up with ourselves. The Mongol Empire in 1265 spanned from Asia to the Black, in the Black Sea to the Pacific Ocean. Kulaban Khan asked Marco Polo to persuade 20, 100 people from the church in Rome to teach Christianity in his court. This was a world empire. He said to Marco Polo, send me 100 Christians. I'd love you to teach the court all about your faith. 
the Christians were in such disarray in Rome, it took them 28 years to find one person that would go. 28 years. They sent one person. By the time he reached the court, the retired emperor said this, It is too late. I have grown old in my idolatry. I find what a shocking challenge that there was this world empire that was saying we need to discover something and the Christians were so wrapped up in themselves they couldn't send one person. And sometimes I think even now, are we so caught up in fighting amongst ourselves or sorting things out in a church that we're not here to make an impact upon Ealing and beyond? That's the challenge, isn't it? The kingdom of God is not about self-promotion, but self-sacrifice. It's not about self-promotion, but self-sacrifice. Jesus says quite clearly, those who want to be first must be last. Now, this is not in the Bible, but I thought it was a, a, a witty little saying, so I'd bring it to you. We can only be anything if we're willing to lay down everything. How do you feel about that? Hey, what could you do for God? Maybe you could do anything. Maybe you could dream the big picture. Maybe there could be a film made of your life. You could only do anything for God if you're willing to give up everything. That's what the Bible teaches. Mother Teresa, who many of you will know, she was a nun in Calcutta, said this, at the end of life, we will not be judged by how many diplomas we have received, how much money we have made, how many great things we have done. We will be judged by, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you took me in. It's been the challenge, hasn't it? Even this very week, with homeless people dying on the street. And we think, God, how do we be the church and know that's happening on our watch? Jesus really challenges his disciples. I want you to serve those that can do nothing for you. He then makes an example. Why? Because we know that if you do something demonstrative, people suddenly remember it. You only remember very little of what you actually hear. But if you see something... So what Jesus does as the great teacher is he takes this child in his arms. Now, we live in a child-orientated society. You know what I'm saying? They didn't. There was no such thing as pester power or the nag factor when it was their society. It wasn't like, oh, if you get the kids doing it, the parents would do it for a quiet life. It wasn't like that. Kids were actually... They had no power, no influence. So he almost takes the last, the least, the lost, brings them right into the middle and says, actually, I want you to really care like a child. John Bunyan, he was an English writer and Puritan preacher in the 1600s, said this, you have not lived today until you've done something for someone who can never repay you. Oh, I find that a challenge, don't you? Because if I'm really honest, I would like to do something for somebody else that might do it back to me. Hey, look, why don't you come around for dinner at my place? (laughs) I'll buy the first round, anticipating you buy the second. It's so easy, isn't it, that we suddenly think, well, I could do something for somebody else. Hopefully they do something for me. Look, if I babysit for you this week, could you babysit for me next week? 
Whereas actually the whole challenge here is serve all, serve those who can do nothing for you. I know that they've just done a notice, haven't they, even now, about, oh, it'd be great to serve. I would love to have a church where actually, you know, we stood up and we said, look, the problem with you guys is you're serving too much. I don't know what we're going to do. We might have to do rotors that you you can only serve now once every six weeks. I've just got a queue here and I want to give other people a go. Because sometimes I think, God, if we really understood what Jesus takes his disciples along to, that's what it was like. I, I don't find this easy. I feel a bit like I'm, you know, like a boxer. Jesus has got me right on the ropes right now. You know what I'm saying? I think, oh, man, alive. Give me a break. I'm just waiting for the bell to come in. I'm waiting for the judge. say, okay, Jesus, just back off. Give these disciples a break. Can't you see they're, they're, they're reeling here? And what happens is it's almost like he follows up with another punch. This second section that is here recorded. Not one of us. John, who makes this comment, was considered the beloved disciple of Jesus. You can read about that in the Gospel of John. So when there was the Last Supper, he was the one that was leaning on Jesus. There was a sense of closeness and intimacy. But John, the one who is close to Jesus, I mean, I find this incredible. He actually says, you know what, Jesus? We saw this guy doing this miracle, and we stopped him. What I don't understand is if you were here the other week, the disciples had tried to do the same miracle and couldn't do it. (laughs) He's doing what we couldn't, but we stopped him. Why do we stop him? Because he's not one of us. They weren't thinking about Jesus. They were thinking about themselves. Oh, but he's not one of us. So easy, isn't it, to get so insular? Oh, but but he's, he's not one of us. Jesus' agenda is so much bigger. Billy Graham, the guy who died this week, age of 99, an evangelical who wanted to tell everyone about Jesus, says this, I think it is a sin to look at another person as inferior to yourself because of race or because of ethnic background. And I think the greatest thing to do is to pray that God will give you love for them, and I do. And, and he was almost saying, actually, you don't need to judge people because they're not one of us. I've said so many times, uh, there's 172 nationalities that live in this borough. And I don't want to settle until there's 172 nationalities that are part of this church. Because ultimately, we don't just want to become a little clique. I think that's quite a challenge, isn't it? Do we just have other couples around if we're a couple? Or do we invite singles? If we're in our 20s, when was the last time we had somebody in their 60s round? Or have they got to be just like us? What Jesus is saying, and now I want you to think bigger and to think different. You see, when we get small-minded and parochial, the enemy becomes anyone who's not with us rather than Satan. The enemy of the disciples was Satan, but suddenly it was anyone who's not doing it our way. Oh, come on. Jesus is saying, come on, I don't want you thinking like that. I want you to think different. You see, John comes to Jesus, John the beloved one, and what is he concerned about? He's concerned about power. Who's got the power? Whereas Jesus is concerned about compassion. I mean, even the illustration, it's quite bizarre. Someone just gives you a cup of water. I'll reward them for that. 
Why? Because that's compassion. There's no power in a cup of water. They want the power. Jesus wants the compassion. Jesus wants, where's your care? That's what I'm looking for in disciples. Where is the care? Phil Moore, he's a, a pastor who's written several commentaries. I like to quote them so you think, oh, golly, where'd you get some of this from? Look it up. It's called Straight to the Heart. It does a whole series. He says this, church history has only room for one hero and it isn't any one of us. The danger is we want to be the hero in our own story. Whereas actually what we discover here is that it's much, much bigger than us. Jesus is really saying, I want you caught up in this story where it's not ultimately better. I want you to serve others and I don't want you to be small-minded. I don't want you to be parochial. What's the third thing that I see here? It says it many times in these last few verses, causing to stumble, causing to stumble. Jesus is more concerned about fragile faith than fragile egos. We get so caught up in, well, how does this impact me? How does this affect me? Whereas Jesus is really concerned about those that are new to faith. There are four pictures, I believe, in this passage of how to be radical with sin. And so it's almost Jesus saying, look, come on, I want you to be, this is to the disciples, yeah? This is teaching to disciples. If you are not yet a Christian here, you're looking in this morning, you think, well, if I go there, this is, this is what it means to be a disciple. If you are a Christian this morning, then this is, hey, this is how I should be living. Four pictures of how to be radical with sin. The first is to be lynched by an angry mob. You see, a millstone around the neck, it was almost like the mafia making you a pair of cement boots. You know what I'm saying? If, if someone gives you a pair of cement boots, it's not because they're your friend. The idea was you, you went for a swim in a pair of cement boots and down you went. This whole picture here of a millstone, there was two different sized millstones that they used to have in those days. One that you'd roll by hand and that you'd grain out this flour. It was one size. They reckon the word used in this passage was the one that was so big it could only be pulled by a donkey. So literally this donkey would go round and they'd pour this massive amount of wheat in the top and they'd grind it out. There was no chance of you swimming with that one. That's how radical it is with sin. Literally a millstone. There's certain judgment. What's the second picture? A fire that never goes out. There wasn't recycling in those days. It wasn't just, what, what do we do with rubbish? There wasn't this every other week collection with different colored bins. That wasn't how it happened in Jerusalem in those days. What was, there was is there was a valley outside the city. So what do you do? I mean, let's be honest, you can see it sometimes with people rubbishing their cars, can't they? They wind down the window and out it goes. They drive on. In those days, what did they do with their rubbish? Over the city wall. There was literally a valley where there was fires lit that reckon never went out. In fact, because so many in their society were into burning their children to appease God, they reckoned that in this valley they had to have constant drumming to drown out the screams of children that were being murdered. So the rubbish was being thrown over, fire was lit, this drumming was going. They nicknamed this place Gehenna. That's a way he talks about, oh, sin. 
amputate your body was the third one. Now, many people have said, oh, look, you know, why isn't half the church blind? I mean, let's be honest, we've all done something wrong, haven't we? You know, why aren't we all... <laughs> nice to see you at church today. <laughs> Has anyone got a wheelchair? Because I think the other leg will be gone by next Sunday. We, we know that it's not a physical thing. There's probably only been one church father that thought it was. That was a guy called Oregon. He actually castrated himself, according to church tradition, because he didn't want to sin using his private parts. I'm not asking you to castrate yourself this morning. But I tell you, it's a very radical approach to sin. What, you mean chop my hand off? I'd like a little sympathy now because I didn't get it at home. I played football on a Friday night and I got stamped on my foot. And uh, my toe was so painful that I had to go to A&E yesterday to have the blood drained out from underneath my big toenail. Thank you. My wife just said, well, you should have bought better trainers. You know what I'm saying? Football boots, there you go. And I think, oh, God, I've, just, I've been limping all day. They told me I'm definitely going to be losing my toe toenail. Not my whole toe, just... I think, oh, that feels painful. Jesus was saying, chop your foot off, chop your hand off. How radical is that? How intrusive is that? How painful is that? Behave, you to be my disciple. I want you to be that radical. Joan of Arc, she was a French warrior in the 1400s, said, I would rather die than do something which I know to be a sin or to be against God's will. It's almost like, come on, what am I looking for? I'm looking for those that serve. Oh, that's a huge challenge. I'm looking for those that are inclusive. That's a massive challenge. I'm looking for those that are radical with sin. The last one, it's difficult. I don't want to, you know, over-preach this one. It talks about salt. Now, if you look up Leviticus 12, verse 13, you know that salt was used in connection with sacrifice. And so there's been some discussion about quite how did this fit in here. The only way I can understand it is that actually salt was used on the altar and the altar was used for consuming something to appease a holy God. That's how I understand that picture. What I realize this though, when you look at the story of Mark, heaven is given as an illustration for sinners Hell is always given as an illustration for believers. Really interesting take. I personally not thinking he's convincing them that there is a hell for them to go to, but I think at least what he's trying to say is, come on, I want you to be radical and radically different. That's the story of Jesus. Barack Obama, the president, I guess, who brought some hope to that wonderful nation says this, the best way to not feel hopeless is to get up and do something. Don't wait for good things to happen to you. If you go out and make some good things happen, you will fill the world with hope. I think if I'm really honest, Jesus Christ has got a slightly better message than even Barack Obama. It's not just go and be nice and niceness will happen. Go and bring hope. I think actually in this challenge, he was saying, I will model it myself. You see, we all love to read John 3, 16. Everyone could say it to me now. Favorite verse of the Bible? It's probably up there already. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This morning, I want to challenge you on 1 John 3, 16. Because there's a letter in the New Testament, and it goes like this. 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This radical teaching, this costly story, Jesus himself was on the way to Jerusalem and to demonstrate. I would like to say this morning, the only thing that costs more than following Jesus is not following Jesus. The only thing that costs more than following Jesus is not following Jesus. You can think about that and come back and ask me your questions next week. I want to challenge us this morning from this passage. This is for disciples. There's three things that we are to do. We are called to serve. We are called to welcome, and we are called to be pure. And it's almost like if you want to be part of this big story, there's a big story going on. The big story of the Bible is this. God loves the world. God has has paid the price for all the mess that's gone on in the world. He wants to restore people to himself. He wants us to come into a relationship with him. That's the big story. And then what he says is, actually, I'm looking for radical disciples that will play their part. So if I go back to Churchill, he had some tough conversations, radical decisions. If I go back to the post, I think, man, they were intimidated, but they pursued it. If I go back to the 12 strong, they were in a really tough battle, but actually they kept going. Will we be those that as disciples of Jesus serve, welcome, and pursue purity? Because I think that's part of this story that we've been invited to get involved in. I'd like us to respond in prayer. I'd like us just to take a moment, if you feel God has been speaking to you. God has said lots of things all throughout the morning. But particularly, if you feel, actually, I'm not sure if I do serve. I think I probably expect others to serve me. Maybe just take a moment. Do you think, look, I welcome all... Have I just got a bit selective? Am I pursuing purity? Have I got a bit casual? I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I'm not going to ask you to stand. This morning, I think if you want to respond to what Jesus has said, I'm going to ask you just to kneel. Kneel as an act of faith before him. Kneel and say, look, I want to be your disciple. I want to be caught up on this story. I recognize there's some things I need to do. Just kneel right where you are, and I will lead us in prayer. Jesus, we want to thank you that this story is all about you going to the cross. Jesus, we, we, we love the miracles, we love the teaching, we love the sense of excitement, and yet we realize now that you're challenging us as disciples. Come on, I want some time with you, and, and I want to challenge you, I want to put character in you, I want nettle in you. It's almost like I can create a backbone in you. Jesus, I, I want to kneel as well. Help me to serve, and not just serve those that will serve me back on my agenda. Help me to give to those that will never be able to pay me. 
Help me to welcome all, whether that be at work, in the office, whether it be in my street, school gate, new family, no friends. Help me to be the one that passionately pursues you and says no to sin. Not just, oh, well, nobody's looking. I don't think anyone's going to find this out. I'll delete my history on my computer. I pray instead for purity that says, actually, Jesus, I'm going to cut this off. I want to radically live for you. I ask this all in your precious name. Amen.